Hello and welcome to the Haaretz Podcast. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. My guest, Ehud Olmert, was a powerful member of the Likud party for decades before leaving the government and Likud with Ariel Sharon, who became prime minister. After Sharon suffered a debilitating stroke, Olmert stepped into the position of interim prime minister and then became the country's prime minister, leading the country for three years. That span of time included both a major war in the north, the Second Lebanon War, and in Gaza, Operation Cast Lead. Olmert stepped down in 2009 under the shadow of a corruption scandal, which ultimately led to a trial, conviction, and 16 months in prison. He was released in 2017. Since then, Olmert has been increasingly outspoken, which led at one point to a defamation suit from the Netanyahu family. In recent months, he has written in Haaretz, harshly criticizing the Netanyahu government's handling of the war and negotiations for hostage release. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, welcome and thank you so much for coming on the Haaretz podcast. Thank you. Let's start with the headline of your latest op-ed in Haaretz. Netanyahu's messianic coalition partners won an all-out regional war and Gaza is just a first step. In it, as the headline suggests, you assert that as troubled as many people are by the statements of National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gvir and Finance Minister Betzalel Smotrich regarding a return to the Gaza Strip, that that isn't their ultimate plan, that it's only the first step. Can you explain exactly what you mean? What do you think is their plan? I think the plan is very simple. They want greatest Israel, not greater Israel, greatest Israel. They want Israel. Of course, they want Gaza, if possible, but the uh, they, uh, ultimate uh, destination uh, and the dream <coughs> of the different movements, which uh, they are part of, not necessarily identical in everything, but that they are part of, is to uh, annex the uh, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, to be part of the state of Israel legally, and uh, naturally to get rid of as many uh, as, uh, residents of the West Bank as possible. And uh, they understand that the uh, uh, military violent confrontation in the West Bank uh, is uh, can be very helpful to achieve this goal. So they want uh, the, uh, the Gaza uh, a battle to continue, not because Gaza itself is the most important part in the program. Gaza, uh, Gaza is a vehicle, is a corridor, which will uh, expand the uh, violence and the hostilities, and which will trigger confrontation uh, in the uh, West Bank, and if necessary also in the North. Uh, Armageddon. When the Armageddon will take place, it will be easy to get rid of as many, to expel many of the uh, uh, citizens of the West Bank, the Palestinians, and get rid of them. Kill them and get rid of them and expel them. This is my understanding of what I know about what they do. They uh, support that they give to the Hilltop youth, 
not just the support, the encouragement, the incitements, the uh, ins inspiration that they provide to do what they are doing. They are already doing now. I mean, we don't have to wait for the future. Already now, there are more than 250 Palestinians that were killed in the West Bank since October 5th, 7th. As certainly, there, some of them were uh, terrorists, no doubt about it, and they were killed by the security forces in the course of uh, some kind of confrontation uh, of a terrorist action by them. But the great majority of them were killed in different ways. And I'm afraid not necessarily uh, for good reasons and not necessarily by the uh, qualified security forces of Israel, uh, but by uh, volunteers, such as the Hilltop Youth. And also, of course, um, the, uh, the uh, lynch, uh, the lynching of... Uh, uh, Palestinians in the West Bank, the attacks against uh, properties, uh, the uh, statement made by Smotrich that uh, lynch in Hawara should be uh, accomplished by the state, that it will not be a voluntary individual action, but that the state as such should destroy uh, villages and townships in the West Bank. All this has comes up to something that I think indicates very clearly what their purpose is. So you believe they're taking steps, actually behaving in a way that will increase uh, the likelihood of all-out war on all of Israel's borders and in the West Bank, and you know, behaving in such a way, including standing in the way of a hostage deal in order to make sure that war continues to increase the possibility of more Palestinians being driven from, uh, from Gaza and the West Bank? There are two ways to uh, address this issue. One is just to try and in interpret in a most uh, cool-headed manner what is the practical meaning of what they say publicly. They are against the deal. They say it themselves. They are in favor of continuing the uh, military uh, confrontation with the Hamas, even if it becomes quite clear to everyone everyone in Israel and many outside of the state of Israel, that the idea of dismantling completely, of destroying completely, uh, of removing Hamas from the face of the earth is not realistic. But they want to uh, continue uh, this uh, military operation. And of course, if this military operation will expand to Rafa, it is likely not certainly, but likely to shatter the uh, peace treaty between Israel and the uh, Egyptians, which is a major uh, blow to the uh, strategic interests of the state of Israel. They are in favor of all of this. They uh, spell it out in the most uh, explicit way. Uh, they say that they, if there will be a deal for the release of the hostages, uh, that will require uh, a truce of many days, as apparently it looks like it may happen, then they will break the government. So if you just analyze what they say, 
objectively, without attaching any particular purpose or, or intention uh, uh, to them, it's quite clear to where it leads. It leads to an expanding confrontation in the uh, West Bank and also their decision to limit the uh, access of uh, Israeli uh, Muslims to the Temple Mount on the month of Ramadan is a prescription for a confrontation which may end up with another intifada. They are fully aware of it. They must be aware of it. Every objective uh, analysis must lead to this inevitable conclusion. And they are in favor of it. So I think there is only one interpretation. They want this because what they want, what they really want, is the West Bank. And in order to have the West Bank in the easiest possible way, which is not easy, but the easiest possible way is to have a violent confrontation which will allow many of them, together with the security forces under certain circumstances, to, uh, to kill, to uh, persecute, to... Uh, force uh, Palestinians to expel them out of where they live, out of the, the, where they are, in order to reduce the number of Palestinians, make easier the annexation of the territories. So judging from his behavior, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, does he actually believe that this is what they want, this is what they're doing, and in order to guarantee his own political survival, because his coalition depends on them staying in the government, he's willing to write them a blank check? Or do you see from his behavior that Netanyahu believes on some level that he can control the descent into what you believe will lead to Armageddon and the possible breaking of historic treaties and peace guarantees that Israel has? Listen, quite frankly, I don't know what he knows. I don't know what he thinks. I know what he does. And what he does is quite obvious. He gives them a blank check. Uh, he uh, initiated the uh, resolution of the cabinet about the Temple Mount, a uh, limit of the access of the uh, Muslims to the, to the Temple Mount, which is uh, really outrageous and, and extremely dangerous. Uh, and uh, uh, everyone thinks, and I'm just one of thousands of observers that uh, examine and look at the maneuvering of Netanyahu with regard to the deal for the hostages that comes to the inevitable conclusion that he's not really interested in an in agreement, in a deal, because a deal will almost certainly lead to the breakup of the government, and the breakup of the government is a disaster for Netanyahu uh, on a personal basis, in terms of his own survivability. And uh, he will not do anything which endangers his uh, uh, survival. So practically, if you examine what he does, then uh, whether he knows, whether he's fully aware, whether he understands, whether he's in, still in such a nervous breakdown that he's do, he does not comprehend completely the possible ramifications of what he's doing, this is what he's doing. I just used the words uh, nervous breakdown, and I'm remembering that uh, you just suffered from a defamation suit by the uh, Netanyahu family for using such terminology, yet you don't seem afraid of continuing to use it. 
I didn't. Uh, first of all, <laughs> I think I won. I, I won the understanding of a vast majority of the Israeli people of how, I mean, objectively speaking, in, in analyzing and trying to understand uh, the behavior of him and his family, no one can reach other, another conclusion. But uh, uh, um, a nervous breakdown is the only way to interpret the way he behaves. I don't know. I don't know uh, that he suffered uh, a nervous breakdown. I don't have any medical uh, evidence to uh, prove this. But I have brains. I have eyes. Uh, I understand what I see. And what I see is a behavior of someone that has gone through a dramatic nervous breakdown. And uh, most likely he still didn't recover from it. You've written that the odds of achieving the complete elimination of Hamas were not feasible from the moment that Prime Minister Netanyahu declared it the chief goal of the war. Why do you think he overpromised this way? First of all, because he wanted to be able to say at the end of the day, whenever it would be, that he wanted. It's just that the uh, generals, the commanders, the heads of the different security bodies, the Shin Bet or the army or all the others, were not good enough. And maybe, I mean, his uh, a poison machine will also say, as some of them already did, that the commanders of the army and the Shin Bet are uh, collaborators with Hamas, that they knew everything from the beginning and they they cooperated with the Hamas in order to bring down Netanyahu. So uh, uh, whether he... he he will say it explicitly or whether he will allow the poison machine that is operated by him to say this, I don't know. But this has been on the, uh, on the public discourse for a long time. Look what happened in the uh, middle of a cabinet session. He says to, uh, to the uh, head of Mossad, this is not how you should negotiate. And he, and he criticized him publicly in the very harsh manner for uh, not being tough enough with the, uh, the Hamas. Who is tough enough with the Hamas? Only Bibi can be, according to him, of course. So the, the, uh, I'm looking, and I think everyone can look, at a very comprehensive effort of a, a very sophisticated poison machine that is aimed at one thing, at trying to accuse everyone on everything and trying to uh, re-emphasize time and again, there's only one person who understands the uh, use of power against our adversaries, and this is Netanyahu. And nothing else is of any consequence. Since December, you've been calling for a ceasefire, not a temporary ceasefire, but a ceasefire that would immediately bring about the next phase of the current conflict, uh, ending hostilities, returning the hostages, living and dead, and negotiations mediated by Egypt, you said at the time, on the future of Gaza. So it's two months since you've written that, and it still hasn't happened. Is it still your position that that's what we need? Yeah. Look, I think that we have won this military confrontation, big time. Really, I think the performance of the Israeli army and the Israeli security forces, the Israeli air force, the coordination between the ground forces and the air force, 
the uh, is exemplary, is unbelievable. Has there was I don't think that there is any precedent in the modern history of uh, wars where uh, an army was fighting so successfully against uh, a terrorist organizations, which is embedded in the center, urban centers uh, that are crowded with hundreds of thousands of civilians underground, in tunnels entirely underground, and is doing so well. You know, I remind you that in the uh, 80s, uh, a big communist Russia with all its enormous power was defeated by the uh, Afghanis in Afghanistan, and they had to retreat completely with disgrace. This is not the case here. We really have been doing dramatically well, but the expectation that we can dismantle them completely. There are two and a half million people living there. Every Everyone can pick up a, a gun uh, or an RPG and, and shoot and kill uh, people hiding behind uh, the debris, which we are now accumulating uh, in the uh, Gaza. And there is no way to ever end it completely. To the extent that you can succeed in such a war, we already did. So we have to be smart to think about, in a cool-headed manner, to think about the, uh, the next step. What is the end game? Let's assume, just for the sake of our discussion, Alison, that we will achieve what Netanyahu has uh, set out as uh, the ultimate goal. And we will destroy completely. There will not be one Hamas uh, left alive. Okay, none of their leaders will uh, survive it. They will all be killed by the uh, uh, sophisticated military operation of Israel. All right, there is no Hamas, but there are still 5 million Palestinians. What are we going to do? What do we want to do with them? What plan do we have? What program is being contemplated by us as to the uh, how we deal with 5 million Palestinians, 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank, 2 million Palestinians, perhaps more in Gaza? What are we going to do to remain occupiers forever? Is this possible? Is this something that we can live with? Is this something that will not uh, trigger? Time and again, on a daily basis, violence, confrontation, terror, hatred. Is it not going to make Israel a pariah in the international community? That the uh, attitude towards Israel will be uh, even worse than it was already now, I think, than it was to South Africa at the time. What do we want? So we have to decide what are the risks that we are going to have to bear with, and how are we dealing with it? And I think that I will never say that there will not be a security risks. I will never say, because I think there will. There will be security risks. Terror will not be removed completely. Uh, occupation of uh, almost 60 years, okay, is not going to be forgotten. The bitterness that comes with it, hatred, the suffering that was part of being under the military occupation. I mean, there is no question about it. There were good historical reasons why we were there in the first place. Uh, there was terror. 
there was hatred, there was Arab belligerency, time and again, time and again. They missed many opportunities. All this is true. But at the end of the day, from their side, the 60, almost 60 years of occupation is something that created a great deal of bitterness, of hatred, which will not be removed overnight. So there will be risks, and there will be, uh, and there will be attempts of terror. And Israel is strong enough when we are not arrogant and we don't take for granted that the Palestinians are a bunch of idiots that are not capable of doing anything now that they proved how efficient in the hatred of Israel they can be in perpetrating what they did. That take the necessary measures to defend ourselves, but we have to pull out. And the best possible prospect for something that can grow out of this positively is a Palestinian state. There will have to be uh, agreed upon within the framework of an agreement between Israel and the Palestinians with the support of all the moderate Arab countries and the creation of a new axis of moderate Arab countries that will include the Palestinians and, of course, Egypt and Jordan, the Emirates and the Saudis and the Bahrainis and the North African countries and Israel as part of it. So this will create the new horizon that we are looking for. But this government, not only that he doesn't have any idea, he doesn't even want to discuss it or to, to think about it or to just, you know, argue about it. Uh, so uh, they, that's why I think they are so dangerous to the security of the state of Israel and they have to be removed as soon as possible. Well, the people on the right are now, the Ben Gvirs, are trying to score points by saying that with an occupation, there won't be an October 7th. And they're pointing to the disengagement that was the initiative of the government that you were part of as, you know, draw, they're drawing a line between disengagement and Hamas and what happened to Israel on October 7th. There is an attempt, there is an attempt to, uh, to assume the paradigm of the 7th of October is permanent. And therefore, uh, that uh, we are doomed to have a similar situation in, at any time in the future. What happened on the 7th of October? On the 7th of October, all the military power of the State of Israel was absent. We were not there. Had we been there, had we been there with six choppers or eight choppers, and two uh, brigades, nothing would have happened. Nothing would have happened. There wouldn't have been any 7th of October. So the, the failure starts with the, uh, the overconfidence uh, that was uh, inspired, that was spread, that was uh, argued time and again by the prime minister, that Hamas is deterred. And Hamas is deterred because of the sophisticated manipulations of Netanyahu that he thought Netanyahu is a man that is completely, completely uh, tied up to the myth that money can buy everything. This is how he lives in a personal way. And he thought that the money will buy the Hamas and that if he will uh, avail for them the hundreds of millions uh, that comes from Qatar and from other places will make it possible for them, that he will buy their 
acquiescence. Uh, he will buy the corporation. I mean, this was stupid, childish, narrow-minded, uh, and it brought about a disaster because we we behaved like we don't believe that they will ever be able to do what they did. And even when we had all the information, we had all the intelligence, the, uh, the Israeli intelligence, which was known to be perhaps the best in the, in the universe. And we were so proud of the prestige of the Israeli intelligence in the minds and hearts of so many people across the world. I can tell you, wherever I went, everyone used to say to me, A200, you know, is, is the greatest thing that was ever created. Now everyone looks at us and say, how with all the sophistication that you possess, you couldn't find out what they were planning? But the truth is even worse. We knew everything, all the plans, all the maneuvering, everything that they have planned, we knew. But we were so arrogant not to be able to believe that they can accomplish what they have planned because who are they, these bunch of Palestinians, terrorists, that they can challenge this, the, the great empire of the state of Israel that is prepared to destroy Iran at any time. If Iran will deal with us, they will start with us. So I don't know about Iran, but for the time being, 5,000 Palestinian terrorists uh, shook the foundations of the state of Israel. And this is because of arrogance and overconfidence. And this is what uh, can't be the paradigms for the build-up of the future uh, political arrangements that ought to be the basis for a changed Middle East. You've acknowledged, uh, writing in Haaretz, that as prime minister, you refused the Gilad Shalit deal, which involved releasing a relatively small number of uh, prisoners, fewer than Benjamin Netanyahu ultimately released when uh, when he took the deal. Now, however, you favor a deal, you've said, even if Israel needs to release all Hamas prisoners, even those with blood on their hands, in exchange for the hostages. I'm interested in why your views have changed so radically. Nothing has changed in my attitude. I wouldn't have done the Shalit uh, deal today at any cost. I wouldn't have done it. Even if it may have meant the losing of one soldier. You know how many times I sent soldiers and security guys to uh, missions where from not all of them came back alive. So the basic uh, uh, allegiance that we have with soldiers and the security forces is that under certain circumstances, when the need arises for the security of the state of Israel, we have the right, the moral right, to send them to fight, even at the risk of them not coming back. But the hostages that were abducted and that are now waiting more than 142 days in, uh, in the tunnels they are not soldiers. They are Israeli citizens that were waiting to celebrate their holidays on Saturday morning in their homes, in their living rooms, in their bedrooms, in their safe rooms, in where they live. And we deserted them. We, the state of Israel, we deserted them. 
we ignored the basic fundamental obligation that we have to defend the lives of Israelis against enemies that come from outside. We were not there to defend them and we have no right now to desert them and not to make every possible effort at any cost to bring them back. That's all. And this is entirely different from what was the case with Gilad Shalit. Do you think that National Unity Party's Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot, the former opposition members who are now sitting in the war cabinet, are doing the right thing by being in that war cabinet and participating in the decisions, basically keeping an eye on Netanyahu and Itamar Ben-Gvir and the rest of the direction of the government? Or do you think that they're participating in this is legitimizing the government and they would be best returning to the opposition? Uh, look, I have to say, uh, both. I know them both. In a way, you know, I was their boss when I was prime minister and they were the general staff of the state of Israel and, and, and they worked with me in different ways. Occasionally, it's part of my responsibility and theirs. They are good guys, both of them. Decent, good, uh, patriotic, uh, courageous fighters. Nothing uh, that, uh, you know, uh, that anyone can say can can change this. They are uh, of the best guys that we have. But I was afraid that when, if they will join the cabinet and uh, anticipating what the cabinet under Netanyahu wants and what he is aspiring for, and uh, what the disasters that he is responsible for, that on the day that he will be expelled, that he will be thrown out in disgrace, that there is a danger that they will be thrown out with him. And uh, I say then that I want them to remain outside. They can give advice, they can participate in discussions with the prime minister, defense minister, without being members of the cabinet, because we need an alternative leadership to take over when Netanyahu will be thrown away. And uh, so that was the reason why I didn't want them to join. Although, of course, their advice and their judgment and their experience is of great uh, significance. At this point now, looking at what the cabinet is doing, the behavior of the prime minister, the decisions that the cabinet is taking, the effect that the prime minister gave a negative answer to the... Uh, uh, about the participation of an Israeli delegation a couple of weeks ago in the negotiations for a, a deal on the hostages without even advising Gantz and uh, Eisenkot, uh, a legitimate question arose. If they are not consulted with, if they are not uh, taking part in uh, decisions of this significance, so what's the use of their being in the cabinet? And I think that this question comes again and again into uh, the center of the uh, political discussion now in Israel, for good reasons. So I think your answer is that you think they would be better off leaving? I think that we will be better off if they leave. My focus is not the personal fate of Eisenkot or Gantz. Uh, but, uh, on a personal basis, I don't, I don't know what's good for them. I know what may be good for us, for the state of Israel, for the security of the state of Israel, for the uh, status of the state of Israel, for the solidarity within the Israeli society. That's what 
I think is of significance. And that's what should guide them. You just made headlines in a Middle East uh, newspaper website by saying in an interview that, quote, Israel has no means to be able to destroy the nuclear program of Iran. A lot of people might think that, but very few uh, Israeli officials and commentators will say that out loud. Do you think it was a good idea to make that assertion? Number one, I'm not a commentator. Number two, I'm not an official. Number three, I may have the knowledge that maybe some others don't. Look, Israel has the capacity, the strengths, and the means to cause enormous, enormous damage to Iran. And I wouldn't, and I said it all the time, I never hesitated to say it. We can destroy, uh, we can attack Iran in a way that will cause a dramatic impact to Iran on strategic, important strategic positions in Tehran and in many other parts of the country. We did many things in the past, which I don't think is wise to now spell it out. What we can do, because of objective reasons, we don't have the reach to the uh, different sites where they uh, develop their nuclear plants to the extent that they do it. And I don't know exactly, I'm not privy to the intelligence information, but we definitely don't have the means to reach out to all these places. And I think that uh, it is quite obvious. The uh, Iranians know it, we know it. And the threats made by the Israeli uh, spokesman sometimes is, again, the same, the repetition of the same arrogance and overconfidence and childishness and stupidity, which we have to refrain from. Everyone knows that we don't, uh, we can do it. We can do a great deal of harm to Iran, but not that. My final question is about the calls on the streets in Israel, which are growing for new elections for the replacement of Netanyahu somehow. You said repeatedly, including now, that the government needs to be replaced. Do you now support doing this even in wartime, or do you think it needs to wait until after the war? We are four months late in doing it. So I don't think that we can afford to wait any day. It has to be done today. And I'm afraid that it will not be done uh, in the traditional parliamentarian manner that under normal circumstances is what we would prefer. Uh, they, uh, you know, uh, the eruption of volcano happens without any uh, pre-warnings. It suddenly happens and when it erupts, it sweeps everything with it. And I think that we are very close that such an eruption will take place in Israel with uh, millions of people that are unhappy, that feel insulted, that feel humiliated, that feel neglected by this government and the bunch of terrorists which seem to be in control of the prime minister and the, the uh, attitude to the hostages, uh, to the families that are rioting in the streets in order to try and save them to uh, the uh, soldiers that uh, uh, are serving already 140 days in the reserves, exposing themselves to uh, the uh, risks uh, on a daily basis. And uh, uh, all of this will build up into a, an 
eruption of rage that will be volcanic and that will change uh, everything uh, in Israeli politics. Uh, how soon it will happen? I want it to happen tonight. Uh, again, I'm not talking about any non-democratic event. I'm talking about the expression of the public discontent to the extent that will have to force a political change and the early elections, and the sooner the better. Former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for answering our questions so thoughtfully. Thank you. And that wraps things up for the Haaretz podcast. Thanks to my guest, Ehud Olmert, to my producer, Avri Rosensvi, and editor, Nara Malkin. I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer, and until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.